Well, I appreciate the invitation to be with you. And um, at the table, Wendy pointed out how there was that sheet that said, what did you call that meal when you were growing up or what do you call it now? But I think an even more profound question would be, what does that meal mean? Whether it's a wafer and wine or bread and grape juice, what does it mean to you? And then to imagine somebody asking the second question, which is, and how can that have anything to do with politics? Again, politics being defined as the common good, because we tend to think of that meal, I'm calling it a meal, the Jesus meal, whatever you want to call it, as this is my personal thing with God. I eat this meal and maybe I think about this or I think about that. Who knows what everybody's thinking about when they do it, but I doubt very many of us think, I'm practicing politics when I'm eating this. But that's what we're going to talk about. Um, and to do that, I want to read a scripture passage. And so this is your final Jeopardy question right here. You don't have to know chapter and verse, but where in the New Testament would you go? Or what do you think about as a passage to talk about this meal we call communion or Eucharist, whatever you want to call it? Anybody? Not all at once. Take your time. Nobody? I'm going to go John. John. Okay, good, good. Get a little hazy on the chapters. Okay. <laughs> well, most people, I think, pick a gospel, and then they pick one of those upper room stories where Jesus, on the night before he dies, he gathers disciples, and he breaks bread, and he has a cup of wine. And that's not where we're going. <laughs> so I was setting you up, right? Um, we're going to read a story that you don't think of as having anything to do with communion. And maybe think of it as doing politics, and that's where the two come together. It's the only story, <clears throat> it's a miracle by Jesus, but it's the only one that's in all four Gospels. No other miracles in all four Gospels. And in Matthew and Mark, there are two versions. So there are six versions of this story, which you could argue makes it one of the most important stories in the life of Jesus. So it, it will become very familiar here when I start reading. This is Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going, and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. You know where this is going, right? Yeah. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. 
And all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered five thousand men. They didn't count the women and children, unfortunately, but there were women and children there. Um, so believe it or not, <clears throat> some biblical scholars call this Mark's version of Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not... Yeah, so it's got a shepherd reference. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. It's got green grass, right? You lie down in green grass. He um, feeds them, like in the presence of my enemies, he feeds them. And there's also in the next story where he calms the sea in a, a storm in the boat. And so you have still waters. So that's pretty cool, but that's not where we're going either. The main reason that I'm reading this is because this has the language of communion in it, or Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. Did, did anybody hear it? I'll give you a clue. There's four verbs. I'm a professor, so I quiz people. Yes. Yes, blessed, broke. Gave. You just missed the first one. <clears throat> Before he blesses and breaks, he took. Very good. Give yourself an A. Woo! Yeah, those four verbs are the same verbs that's used in the upper room story. On the night before he's betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, sometimes it says gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to him. So those four verbs are always used when there's this meal that we think of as bread and wine, communion, whatever you want to call it. But notice where this one happens. Not in the upper room, and not in a church sanctuary, it happens in the wilderness with 5,000 really people living on the edge. So hungry, so desperate that they will rush ahead to where they think he's going so they can be there. So you don't really think of that as a kind of Eucharist story. Now, I, I personally think it's a little bit um, helpful to think of it this way. Okay, so imagine that you're following Jesus in the year 30. You are there. You are following him, walking along with him. He breaks bread. He feeds 5,000 people. That happened, we'll just say, on a Tuesday. I have no clue what day it happened on. We'll just call it a Tuesday. Could have been a Wednesday. Who knows? Doesn't matter. But we don't have that account. We weren't there on that Tuesday or that Wednesday. What we have is Mark writing the story down 40 years later. So when Mark writes the story down 40 years later, everybody there hearing it, has already been eating this meal for 40 years. And they've always, every time, they've always heard somebody say how he took bread, blessed, broke it. So they know, oh yeah, that's communion. Nobody in the year 30 would have said, that's communion, because they hadn't even gotten to the upper room yet. So it's kind of a flashback and foreshadowing at the same time. But, um, so here's my question though. How, how do you think of that as being political? A communion meal being political, whether it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Anything? Well, today if you feed hungry people, it's contested ground. I mean, how you feed them, where you feed them, if you feed them, if they deserve to be fed. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, if you even start giving food away, the government can come in, right, and say, wait, do you have a license for that? And they control this. Um, similar thing in the first century. 
Right, right, yeah. Now, some people have said when the disciples go, you know, they're looking at their watch. Uh, Jesus getting late, you know, <laughs> that on. that they're kind of crude or they're not caring because they say, "Hey, send them on." Or they could be. It's, there's two ways to read it. Or they could be saying, "Look, it's really getting late, and and if these people don't go into town and get something now, they're going to starve." So it could be benevolent on their part. It could be kind of, Let, "Let's get rid of them, you know, get them out of our hair." It's hard to know how to read that, but clearly, either way, Jesus doesn't find that to be a solution, right? He has compassion. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd, and and so he feeds them. Now, here, here's where it gets a little tricky. Um, I'll, I'll use this analogy because I use this analogy in class. The way we read the Bible in church, and I just did it, is we read a snippet, you know, like 15 verses out of the middle of Mark. Chapter 6, and nobody says, whoa, wait a second, what, why don't you back up to 1-1 one, one and read all the way up to there? Nobody does that. But if I brought in um, The Grapes of Wrath, or Moby Dick, or you know any novel, and I said, okay, so the reading tonight is from page 316, and I read a paragraph, you'd go, what? What's going on? Where? That would be weird, right? You'd have to have some context. Well, nobody's bothered when we do it with scripture but there is a context to this passage the next story is the stilling of a storm and it ends with them pretty impressed with Jesus being able to do that but it's the story before that that I really want us to hear uh, do you remember the story of how John the Baptist dies anybody know that story how's he die <laughs> Nick's doing he has his head's cut off what, why did it get cut off? What, what happens? We're going to reconstruct this. Yes? Herodias had her daughter dance for her husband. Yes. Herod. Herod. Yeah. And he was so pleased that he told the daughter she could have anything she wanted. Right. And the mother. Right. Right. Yeah, and there's a little more backstory too. Herodias <clears throat> had been Herod's brother's wife. He took his brother's wife, and John the Baptist had kind of been preaching against that. And so the wife, the new wife, is not thrilled that he's meddling. And so they're at this banquet. He has this big banquet. And, um, and this was really common at banquets, that somebody would dance, or maybe somebody would sing, kind of like we had somebody sing tonight, right? So in these banquets, somebody would dance or sing, and the daughter dances, and Herod makes this foolish promise without any notion. There's no limitations on it. Whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. And the mother, when she goes out, says, we want the head of John the Baptist because he'd been preaching against their relationship. Okay, so why does Mark put that story next to this story about the feeding of the multitude? You get it? You get it? He's put these together for a reason. Okay, so... In this story that we read, where he breaks bread and blesses it and gives it to him, we said that's the language of communion, and he feeds, what, 5,000 plus. And that's the banquet. Yeah, and that's, that's the banquet. That's that banquet, but then the other one is the banquet where... Yes, banquet. yes, 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 that's it. He tells two banqueting stories. In the first one, it's Herod, who's on the throne, the and it's the rich people, and it results in death. And in the second one, 
It's another banquet, but it's for the poor and it results in their life. He feeds them. Now you see why I said that communion can be a political act? Because Mark and all the gospel writers, every one of those six versions of the feeding of the multitude uses communion language. So when you feed the poor, that is communion. It's not a little piece of bread and wine in the church followed by, you know, an organ song or whatever. But the language of communion is used to feed the poor. So that when you, you know, when you, when you do anything, when you do a food pantry or anything, you don't think of it as communion, but that's really what it is. I mean, you, you're really doing a, a political act. What do you all think about that? I'm going to just stop for a second. Does that trigger anything for you? I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, it, it has us thinking in ways we've never thought of it before. I never thought of it that way before. Right. Yeah, I mean, most of us grow up thinking of communion as a personal act. I don't know if communion is meaningful to you. To some people, communion is like the most meaningful thing in their life. For others, it's like, eh, you know, it's okay. Once a month we do it and take it or leave it. And others kind of in between. But if you ask people on anywhere on that spectrum, people that love it, people that are, ah, whatever, what does it mean? I think most people would say, well, it's remembering the death of Jesus. It's, it's personal. It's confessing my sins. But it's, it's me. It's my. It's, it's, it's mine. It's first person singular. But the gospel writers, every time they tell those six versions of feeding the thousands, use the language of communion. So it's not supposed to be personal. Um, so Wendy mentioned this book that I'm working on, and I've identified four traits of early communion practices. And one of those is um, this notion of inclusion and justice, that they thought of communion as an act of justice. They, they didn't distinguish between feeding the poor and having bread and wine with their meal, because they were meeting in a house church, that kind of thing. But here's where it really gets, I think, even more uh, political. Um, okay, so I don't know how well you know the Holy Land uh, geography, but we'll just let Smithville Lake be the Sea of Galilee, right? It's kind of like it, you know? If you've ever been to Smithville Lake, it's kind of narrow north to south. That's kind of what the Sea of Galilee is. It's not a sea, it's a lake. <laughs> You could ski across it. You could swim across it if you're a pretty strong swimmer. It's not very big. So on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is where tradition has it that Jesus feeds the multitudes. Right there on the north shore. Kind of the northwest corner. Right kitty corner to the northwest corner is Tiberias. It's a town. If you ever go to the Holy Land on a trip, I guarantee you, you will stay in Tiberias one night. Because you'll go to all these places in Galilee and then you'll make your way over to Tiberias and you'll go out on a boat and you'll read the story about Jesus calming the sea and that kind of thing. But now here's the cool part. Herod's father had made another town up there, the capital. And Herod's father, who was another Herod, he taxed everybody on their bread, on food. He taxed the land. And, and the only reason they taxed things was so that the rich would have more. 
It wasn't to benefit the greater good. It was to benefit the rich. But when this Herod, the one that has John beheaded, when he became king, he moved the capital to Tiberias because he said, I'm not only going to tax the bread, I'm going to tax the fish. I'm going to tax bread and fish so that anybody who was poor, living on the edge, barely making it, that's what their meals were, bread and fish, there was going to be taxes so that Herod could have these big lavish banquets. So Jesus performs this miracle in sight of Tiberias. If you go there, they'll, some guide, I do this, right? We read that story about Jesus feeding the multitudes, and then we say, well, look at that. Right across the way is Tiberias. That was the capital. When Jesus feeds people right across the way, he's making a political statement. He's saying, I'm not going to tax them. I'm going to give it to them for free. In fact, some people say that's why he was put to death for free feedings and free healings, that it was kind of economic more so than kind of religious. Okay, so I got one more thing, and then I want you to talk. I, know I can wait you out, too, but, you know, just, just, just think about this. Um, in all the reading I've done and all the study I've done to work on this book, I think there are only two sins... <coughs> two sins associated with this meal that we call communion or whatever you call it. And, and the sins are gluttony and neglecting the poor. So the most famous passage that most people think of for communion is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I don't know if you remember this passage, but he says, if you take of this passage in a wrong manner, you could get sick or die. You ever heard that verse? Paul says, if you take of this meal in a wrong way, you could get sick or die. Now, that's enough to put a damper on most dinner parties. If Wendy or Nick had said just before we ate tonight, if you pick up the wrong fork, you could die. You might be a little nervous during the meal, right? So when Paul says that, <clears throat> people have always said, that's because if you haven't confessed your sins. But that's not what it's about. When Paul says this, it was about the poor were getting to the potluck later. They were getting there later. And the rich were already eating. So imagine that we start eating at 6.30 and that somebody who had to work late got here at 7. Oh, sorry, it's all gone. That's what was happening. Paul's main concern is that the rich were eating too much and the poor had nothing to eat when they got to church. Because they had meals just like we just did. So the only sins really associated with this meal is eating too much and not sharing with the poor. Herod commits both of those. They're feasting. People out there are starving. And Jesus, he reverses that. I mean, he feeds, he feeds the poor. So I'm just wondering, this is your question, how would, how would you, I don't know, what, what do you think about doing about this? What do you think about reimagining communion as a political act? Well, I know that like, whenever we, so there, there, in Kansas City locally, there's a, a push to make it illegal to distribute food, food to the homeless without having a food handling permit. Mm -hmm. And uh, that also would have made any kitchen that prepared the food subject to regular like restaurant 
um, regular restaurant uh, health department inspections and that kind of thing. And uh, th th this kind of thing has happened in other places. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's pretty powerful to see images of people merely handing out food and then in turn being arrested for it. Because mm -hmm. I, I think like for me, I mean, not necessarily to be like a, you know, martyr man right you know what i mean but but just, just to be like hey we're christians being christians mm -hmm. and this is what we do and this may not jive with the way that your system works but this is how our system works and it's just as valid and in my mind way more so yeah <laughs> yeah you know because it's this is the eternal way of living because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. empires come and go so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna go with the eternal way to live right they give you some trouble so Right. Well, it got Jesus in trouble. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I think also the fact that the idea that Eucharist or communion is a thing of corporate, not individual. It's corporate. Yeah. Yeah. Including the poor. Right. Yeah. Did y'all hear that? That Eucharist or communion is more corporate. Um, really, the New Testament knows nothing of the individual self. You were always defined by your family, by your kin, by you, you know your neighbors. You you were a part of a village. There was no such notion, really. I mean, not even a notion of that. Um, they totally saw themselves as part of a body, as a part of a unit, and so that's why Paul was pretty ticked off that they were eating and neglecting the poor that were still working in the fields. One thing that I've thought about is. What, you know, on the Sundays when you have communion, what if you had in your car some food so that when leaving the church, somebody on the corner, you could give them food? You know, to eat this meal and then to go feed somebody is a pretty amazing thing. I, I know that none of us are kept alive by communion. My mom would have said that communion is not enough food to keep a bird alive. I mean, <clears throat> you've seen those little chiclets of bread? I, a bird, maybe, could make lunch out of that. I don't know. But it, so it's hard for us to think that that's keeping us alive. But if, you'd, if you hadn't eaten in a long time, and we had a loaf, and we had a cup of grape juice or wine, I mean, this would keep you alive, and it, and it does. But to take that, and then to go out from there and to... To, you know, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you could even find kind of communion-like language to share with them or something, you know, like, this is Christ for you or something, I don't know. Someone else? Well, in some ways I feel often that we have institutionalized the, um, some people go without and some people, you know, the neighborhood that I live in, there are homeless churches where, so we have in our, some of our communities, churches predominantly with wealthy people who are always Mm -hmm. And in the neighborhood I live in, there are several churches that are predominantly homeless folks. And so we've kind of institutionalized this separation. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, it might have actually at least been the benefit of saying, well, we recognize that there are people among us that are a part of us mm -hmm. that are not, that are hungry. Yeah. And now we have this sense of, um, well, some people out there are hungry. We aren't. Right. And so the we doesn't even include the poor anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been that, that distance is yeah. And that concerns me. 
Yeah, I sometimes tell my classes that when you read the word you, the pronoun you in the New Testament, it's really y'all. I'm from Texas, so I can say that. But <clears throat> the, the Greek is always plural. The only time it's singular is in one little letter of Paul's, but even before he finishes that letter, he switches back to y'all. And so to think about the y'all... How far out does y'all go? Well, okay, so y'all will be a y'all, but anybody out here, outside of here is not a y'all. Or, you know, how far does the y'all go? And to think about the homeless being part of or the hungry being part of. Yeah, and I also, in the research, I, I found uh, a lot of churches doing what you're doing, kind of dinner churches. Um, one of them is, is called Farm Church, and it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. And they recognized that it was a foodie culture, and so they were going to do a foodie kind of church. So you would come together and do pretty much what we've done tonight. But the one exception was that they grow crops. So on Sunday morning, that's when they meet, you would come, and the call to worship might be, here, go feed the chickens. And while you're feeding the chickens, somebody would read a psalm. And then, can you go pick the carrots, and can you whatever? But they raise food for no other purpose than to feed the poor. And there are others in town who are raising crops, but they sell them. This church raises them to give them away just to feed the poor. So, you know, there's a kind of a communion piece to it, but there's a justice piece. How long has it been there? It just started. Oh, yeah. I was in Yeah, it just started actually. It's in a co-op called Seed or something like that. Okay, anyone else? Going, going, gone. I, I'll, I'll leave you with one thought. This is a great quote. A biblical scholar by the name of John Dominic Crossan says that when you eat this meal, it's never just about food. It's about just food. That's a really good play on words, isn't it? You know, like some people say, well, it's just bread and wine. Well, it's about just, as in justice, as in just bread and wine. So, may it be so. You know, also, even that word communion. Yeah. When I think of it, I think of community. Yes, that's where the word comes from. <clears throat> they didn't make it into a proper noun, capital C. It really, in the Greek, it means sharing. And so, community shares. Yeah, Paul, Paul and Jesus, none of them had this notion of inventing a, a sacrament of the Lord's Supper for the church. It was a meal they ate together and they fed the poor. Spot on. Thanks. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, my pleasure.